and welcome to LawPod. I'm Professor Aoife O'Donoghue and today we're joined by Dr. Ruth Houghton and Julie Morrissey. And today we're going to talk to Julie about her work as a poet, as an academic and as an artist. Julie is an Irish poet, academic, activist and a graduate of UCD Law. From 2021 to 22, she was the first poet in residence at the National Library of Ireland. Her award-winning project, Certain Individual Women, uses poetry to examine gender discrimination in Irish legislation and the Bonrocht, the 1937 constitution in Ireland. Her awards include the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Make Theatre Award and the Arts Council of Ireland's Next Generation Award. Our other guest today is Dr. Ruth Houghton of Newcastle University Law School. And Ruth has published extensively on feminist approaches to international law, on constituent power, on the IMF and democracy, and asks fundamental questions about the way that we imagine constitutionalism domestically, internationally and regionally. So thank you both for agreeing to come along today. I'm delighted to have you. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. So myself and and Ruth are are going to go, you know, interrogate um, poor Julie here slightly. (laughs) and go through a few questions to talk and discuss and, and explore her work. And for our student listeners in particular, I think they would be really you know, interested in the idea that you're a law graduate. And could you explain how you went from doing law at UCD to, to becoming a poet? Yeah, sure thing. It's a bit of an unusual journey. So I never really intended to be a practicing lawyer and never have been. Um, I got my law degree, which I really enjoyed studying law, but I I guess at the time I wasn't very aware of the kind of more various avenues there were for working within law without being a kind of a corporate lawyer, which is the kind of message I was getting at the time, that that's what you could do with your law degree. And that's what everyone, all my peers were trying to get into, like big five law firms. And I knew that definitely was not the route that I wanted to go. So I just thought, okay, well, I guess I won't be doing law then. So after I got my degree, I spent about six or seven years outside of university and I was living in Canada and I was writing. And then I decided that I would go back and kind of more formally study creative writing. So I went back to university to do a master's in creative writing and then a master's in literature and then a PhD in creative writing. Kind of following on from that, um, and I suppose it, it makes sense from from what you've been saying. But why do you think law has such a, a you know resonance in your work? Like, how do you go about thinking about your work? Like, how does it? Do you think that having the law degree impacts on it, or is that kind of us projecting? Because we interact with the law all the time, obviously as legal academics, is that us projecting law onto your work? Or does having a law degree make a difference? Or is it happen to grow up on this island where being a woman and law is inevitably interlinked? I don't think you're projecting, first of all. Um, You know, I think I've realized this the further I've gone into academia myself. Actually, it's particularly in literary studies that I really think and write like a lawyer because I was trained to write like a lawyer. And part of what we do in poetry, you know, as poets, it's actually quite similar to the study of law in in the way that we look at texts. And, and close reading, I think, is something that you're also taught as a lawyer. 
and you're taught about compositional um, choices and you're taught about, you know, you're taught to be analytical and precise and to pay attention to the kind of economy of language in very, very similar ways that poets think about language, maybe with different outcomes in mind. But the actual kind of drafting and compositional elements and, and interpretation and expression is, is very similar to, to how we look at, at legal documents as lawyers. So I don't think it's actually that big of a stretch. And there's lots of lawyer poets, actually, once you start looking. There's many, many of us, which is maybe seems weird. But when you think about all those similarities, maybe makes sense. Um, you know, I think about poetry as a kind of what Lynn Higinian, the American poet, might call the language of inquiry. So I think about it as a way of figuring, figuring through ideas or concepts um, and asking questions which really, I guess, is the same as what lawyers do. That's really fascinating because I come at it from the other way around to you. Because So I originally did English and history as my first degree, so English literature and history, and then went on to do my law qualification and then became a legal academic. So I completely agree that the synergies between the literary and law and the way you're trained to read doing a literature degree is so useful to how you're then trained to read as a lawyer? I mean, when I was doing my master's in literature, that was the first time I do, like studied English um, in university. And I remember when I started turning in papers, one of the professors kind of took me aside and said, you know, there's something about the way that you write and it's not wrong, but we don't really, I don't know what it is and this is not how we write in English. You know, what did you do before this? And I said, oh, I did law. And she said, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> she's like, that's exactly, she's like, you're trying to make like an argument. Yeah. argument. <laughs> so yeah, and I've never really gotten away from that. Like I can't fully switch into the, the like the common conventions for literary scholarship. I, I still have the, the kind of legal conventions and I can't quite get away from it. So I, I think too, it impacts on the way you frame problems as well. Uh, kind of the legal training is you see problems through a particular lens and you construct the answer through a particular lens, I think simply because the training, I, I don't think we realize when we're doing it or even as we're doing it as teachers, that how much of it is about training people to think and write in a very particular way. And I think it probably comes through all the time, I think, in everything that we do. And it's interesting you're saying about writing, because I think from various projects uh, we've done about when we're as academic writers asked to write things other than academic articles. We find it really hard. So even in feminist judgments projects, like people found that really, really hard and finding their voice as a judge really hard. Or with kind of the feminist manifestos with students and I asked them, they did some amazing, in law and gender, some amazing manifestos, but that was a really big leap for them to write in another way because it's sort of the almost giving yourself permission to write in, a, in, in another form, even though you're still using the background law, but taking that f a different form even was, I think, quite, quite, uh, it remains, I think, quite a leap in, in stuff I do, but in teaching as well and with students. Yeah. So I guess thinking then about what law does and, and how, how law is written versus how law is performed. So there's an excellent quote in Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, and it struck us that this is a great way of kind of thinking through how the law is uh, and, and is performed and is a performance. And so the quote is, when you are writing laws, you are testing words 
to find their utmost power. Like spells, they have to make things happen in the real world. And like spells, they only work if people believe in them. And so we were wondering then how this might resonate with how you think about law in your own work. I think that's a great quotation and there's so much in it because law does make things happen. And I think that's really important to understand when we're looking at legal language. There are actual kind of material consequences to to the language of law. And I am kind of interested in what happens when we move that language into different spaces or in different directions and how that can test its meaning or parameters and how we might interpret it differently when we're looking at maybe legal language as poetry as we would if we're looking at legal language in the context of law. And I also think the the kind of um, formulation of, of the spell and law as a spell is really interesting. Partly because, you know, to me, a spell has some kind of additional dimension, like something that is outside, outside of ourselves somehow. And I, I really agree that people think about law like that, almost as if it's something that's been kind of handed to us and that we didn't make it ourselves. And I think that's kind of risky because... You know, there can be this kind of legal fetishism where we see the law as this kind of thing that is given to us and not something that we made ourselves and that we can change or have an impact on. So the spell part, I think, is really true about the way people think about law. But I think that it's really important for people to have a sense of kind of agency about law and to kind of, I suppose it is important that we all believe in it, but also believe that we can change it if it's something that isn't working for us. Mm -hmm. No, uh, absolutely. I guess that's kind of like how we've been thinking through our work with manifestos and the way in which feminist activists or feminist writers will use the the manifesto as a way of kind of uh, showing the extent to which the law doesn't recognize them, but also how they might then assert then the need for reform or the need for change through the kind of the manifesto from that agency that you were kind of talking about. Yeah, because yeah, I think too with and we're just saying about the, being able to change it and that idea of it being a spell as in something handed down to you by somebody who has, you know, has some sort of wisdom that you don't have. And that, you know, I think when it comes to things like constitutions, you know, it's written by forefathers as always forefathers but that they had some sort of knowledge and I was just so on, on social media Donald Coffey who's Maynooth was looking at the exam results of the people who wrote the 1922 constitution and discovered that one of them like had failed all their third year exams and a sort of you know this idea that we we imbue them with this sort of like great expertise and like you know 10 years after failing all your exams in your final year you're writing a constitution you know so like you know there's the sort of what we think people who write those things and do those things and create those spells and hand them down to us, they're often not actually, they don't have this sort of knowledge or Absolutely. legal wit that we're all not capable of having as and well. I don't know if you've ever gone to see De Valera's papers, like the drafts no? of the Constitution. They're in the UCD archive and I've gone to see them, obviously. <laughs> and um, that's what strikes me when you go to look at the drafts. Like, this, this is a person imagining this monumental document and going through it and making little changes and making notes and adding things in and taking them out in the same way that like I might draft a poem or something, but obviously with much greater consequence. But still at the end of the day, it's um, 
a person or a group of people kind of sitting down together and, and making this thing that's going to be like foundational for the state. But there is a kind of a sense that there's an element of like magic or wisdom that I, you know, I'm guessing wasn't really there, you know. Um, they did they did what they could at, at the time, I suppose. Yeah. Like we all do. Yeah. 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 Like it's not magic. That's it's a, not magic. Yeah. Like yeah. law is not magic. No. Uh, I think that's important for us to remember because then it makes it more graspable to think about changing it. Yeah. I, and I think with the with the magic is also when people get sworn into office and things like that there's this summer or when you're doing jury duty or anything like that, you know, where there's a sort of the kind of performance of that, that celebrate or the opening of parliament. Another great example of the sort of the pageantry to go along with it that makes it even more sort of, even if we know that all of those rituals were created and we know that they were all created, but, and, you know, but see, we still sort of the pageantry of it, even graduations, I think in universities in some ways have that same sort of magic of performance and, you know, add a bit of Latin. And oh, poetry. Yeah, yeah. And poetry. Right. Yeah. So that's another way that law and poetry weirdly comes together in this kind of ceremonial use, which which again adds to this idea of poets and lawyers maybe as kind of somewhat magic people. Mm. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to think yeah, of magic. <laughs> <laughs> I was really taken, as you know, I've mentioned it to you before, by with Radical, the work that you did when you were in the National Library of Ireland and the relationships and sort of the, in the women in that kind of revolutionary period when Northern Ireland and Ireland were created and the way that you, you sort of interwove your language with their language and their writings with each other. And what it struck me as well, and it sort of goes back to the work myself and Ruth were doing when I was reading the manifestos, that I always have a very emotional reaction when I'm reading that kind of material because I feel like particularly the women are... are kind of speaking across time and I think to each other at the time, but also to now that the sort of hearing their voices. But I thought it was in in the pamphlet, sort of the the way those voices, you know, making again or rehearing again or uh, kind of to voices that weren't heard at the time or went unheard or unheeded maybe or not listened to or only listened to by each other. And I was sort of wondering about how you approach your work, and in, in, in particularly in that kind of where we we're talking about women's women's voices who were involved in the creation of what is now this island uh, and the way that this island in Northern Ireland and the Republic operates, but who don't come into that narrative or that story that we tell. Yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of like women speaking to each other across time. And that also happens in certain individual women because it's kind of this figure of my grandmother and myself speaking to each other over the same kind of 100-year period, I guess, that Radical is reflecting on because my grandmother was born in 1921 on the week the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed. So we're talking about women of a kind of a similar-ish age. Um, and I'm interested in that first 100 years, you know, of the state and what, you know, what kind of, what the ambitions of the women were versus what ended up happening and I suppose more particularly what women of that generation would think about womanhood in Ireland now. I've often had conversations about radical where people will say things like, oh, you know, those women were so ahead of their time. But I actually don't know if they thought of themselves as, as ahead of their time. I think that they felt that everything that they were asking for was completely just and right and should be happening and not even like a question that they should have to be asking for it that 
you know, that that was kind of an understanding that how the state would be formed um, on the basis of, of equality for everyone. And I sometimes think, you know, you know, were they really ahead of their time or are we just kind of sadly behind ours? That's, that is quite, quite stark, isn't it? That yeah, we actually, we're, we're, yeah. <laughs> but we're not. But I, like, um, I use a quote from, from it um, that she, I can't I'm to remember which, which woman was, but that she was lonely for them, that she was lonely for the other women. And I, for me, that really struck me as being lonely for it, for the the life uh, that in those 100 years that we lost, mm. that, the things that they were naturally asking for at the time, which should, they just all should have gotten. But that the sort of there was an alternative world, almost parallel world, where that actually happened, yeah. and that, that like I'm I uh, that the being lonely. I was like I'm lo- I'm lonely for that other thing that they thought they were getting or wanted to get or were arguing for. That that for, they kind of real sense it created a real sense of loss in me when I was reading it because I was like, oh, that's great articulation of what yeah. I felt. And I think you know one of the things that I came to realize through doing the Radical Project was how rich and deep the Irish feminist tradition is because I also did a lot of work for Repeal. And I think it's no surprise to me knowing that now that there, you know, those networks have been there since then and probably before then. And I was talking to Liz Gillis, who does a lot of work around the revolutionary period as well, like amazing work about the women of that period. And, you know, she was just kind of explaining to me that you know, the women who were involved in the revolution continued on being activists either in their own communities in a kind of a local way or in a more public way, like, say, like Kathleen Clark being the first um, Lord Mayor of Dublin. So that those women, like, continued for the next hundred years to be the kind of radical feminist activists that they were at that point. And then when you think about things like repeal, you know, to me, it seems like, well, no wonder there was such a strong movement there because the the networks and the impulse and the the kind of knowledge of, of how to shape a movement like that was there somewhere. We were drawing on something that was already there, you know? Yeah. So I think that I felt a bit silly when I, you know, when I kind of realized, oh, there was already a template for this. This already exists. It was in the way that, that women have been thinking in Ireland for the last hundred years. And we're just picking it back up, you know. But that's where radical is really important, right? Because it brings you back to that moment and gets you to ask those kind of questions, right? It gets you to into that and go like, well, you know, those women, as you say, they did continue on and they were really important in the 1937 constitution and they were really important in Belfast, for instance, and education and healthcare, like in shaping things. It's just that, but you kind of need the point to go back and go, oh, actually, what did they? What did they? Oh, they did this thing and that thing and did amazing and... And ideally, um, you know, you'd be taught that in school or something. You would, yeah. Point <laughs> <laughs> or in law school. <laughs> yeah. Well, Actually, the law pod, I suppose, is Because <laughs> one of the things that we found when we were reading a lot of the feminist manifestos for our project was the extent to which those feminist manifestos speak to each other as well. And so we often approach manifestos as these kind of individual claims written by single individual men and yet actually the feminist manifestos tend to be written collectively and also uh, speaking both to those masculine manifestos but also to each other and um, doing some further research then specifically in in Japan but I'm sure there's examples elsewhere that at the kind of turn of the end of the 19th century women in Japan were excluded from politics they weren't allowed to be part of political groups and so they turned to poetry as a way of expressing their 
need for legal reform. And so they have these poems that are manifestos where they are claiming space for women and asking for legal and constitutional change. And so, you know, the, the manifesto as a poem, I guess the question then for, for you as the poet, could there be a poetic constitution? I mean, that's incredible. I didn't know that about the Japanese women and I'm very excited to read it. Um, and such a great example of finding space where you have not been given space, right? Finding space to express something in a kind of a material way through text and language where you have not been afforded that space. And I think the idea of a poetic constitution doesn't, it doesn't seem that wild to me. It's partly what I'm doing, I suppose, in revisiting the Bunrocked and scrutinizing the language and writing poems from the language and from the legislation that came out of that language. So, and I, as we said about kind of thinking about writing a constitution, it's, you know, it's kind of an inspiring thing to be part of. And, you know, in the Republic, we have a poet as the president. So for me, I kind of think there's no reason that poets couldn't be involved in constitutional writing. I mean, the last one was partly written with a priest or arch archbishop. archbishop yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, what? Why, you know, if you suggest that now, I think people would would think, no, no, we shouldn't do that. But why not a poet? You know, why not have, and not just poets, like why not have something that is more kind of collective and community driven that could maybe get into those areas of exclusion that exist in the Bunrocked in ways that just hasn't been possible, at least like to imagine it, you know, at least in some kind of experimental way. I don't think, because I think, I guess the constitution itself, when it was being written, as we're saying, like was kind of an experiment. You know, they didn't really know what they were doing. No, and they really didn't. And like, I think, and you can, like, there's lots of examples of that, even the 1998 agreement up here is, and the way that the, the language, it's very different to the to language you find in constitutions, because especially the annexes, which the, the treaty bit looks very like a treaty. Mm. But then the annex bit is all the strands, which is all the substantive bits, but it's written in the kind of, legal but political but sometimes slightly poetic in that they're describing sort of an ideal you know it is a very it's a quite a utopian like the night i think the uh, kind of all, almost owns its utopianism in the nineteen ninety eight agreement more than more than the same often constitutions they do it they just they try to hide it a bit more whereas i think that's an interesting example of one where kind of you know it is it's all about hope and building building somewhere that's you know peaceful and where everyone can live and thrive and it's very much but it's an interesting different kind of language like you have the treaty bit that's quite short that's very like in treaty between the United Kingdom and Ireland etc cetera, etc cetera. and then this this annex which is much more because it's an annex it's an mm -hmm. add-on but it's even though it's actually the important bits it's got this different tenor and language to it that I think allows it or maybe I, like obviously it wasn't writing it and the people who were would be able to answer a bit better, but almost kind of a license to be a bit more because it was about hope. Yeah, because it's a work of imagination, right? Like both like that agreement and any constitution has to be like somewhat a work of imagination because you're imagining something into existence that hasn't existed before. Yeah. Um, and that's what I mean by, you know, they didn't necessarily know what they're doing. Like, you know, of course, you know, they knew what they were doing, but that there is there's an element of the unknown. And perhaps there is room within that kind of unknown or space of imagination for a type of language that is not kind of what we know as kind of pure legal language, which seems to be what you're describing mm -hmm. in that agreement. Yeah. 
Yeah, because I think we often understand constitution as kind of a very directional language, you know, in terms of the way in which it sets up particular institutions and outlines particular roles and responsibilities or duties and powers. And yet, as you said, for you, poetry is the language of inquiry. And perhaps if we saw them as, or read them as poems, or read them with the potential to have that line of inquiry um, and thinking through what might be possible and questioning what, what might be um, possible within the, within the constitution, as you say, they do have that kind of utopian potential um, for reimagining what we might understand as, as the state. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much, Julie, for, for coming in and agreeing to chat to us. And thank you, Ruth, as well, for joining the conversation. Uh, it was really great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.